Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 6. I am uh, excited about this text this morning. Um, I told you that I, I, I ripped it away from from Chris, and uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, to spending some time here this morning. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Uh, Paul has been hammering the, the doctrine of grace and the deep reality of who we are outside of Christ and also hammering who we are in Christ. And this morning he gets to the point where he says, okay... Well, I know what you're thinking, and I know the question in your mind, and here it is. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never, uh, that those who, um, let's try that again. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Lord God, I pray this morning, though, that you would show us how we live as if we are under law, sprinkled with just a little bit of grace. We live as if nothing has happened. We live as if you see us in our sin. We live as if it's all on our shoulders to prove that we are worthy enough to be blessed. We live as orphans trying to work their way into a home and into the the heart of a parent. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would come by your Spirit and you would set us free. I pray that you would fill our eyes, our minds, our hearts with the reality that we have died with Christ... We will be raised with Christ, and we will reign with Him forever as sons and daughters. Father, I pray that you would come by your Spirit, and you would do what only you can do. Father, I have no persuasive power to really change anybody's heart. 
But Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present and that you have more than persuasive power. That you are the very one that raised Jesus from the dead. You brought him from death to life. And so I pray you would do the same for many in this room. I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit, that you would give us a greater love for you, based on the eternal truth of your Word, that we might walk in the life that you have won for us and accomplished for us. Oh, would you do this? For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I became a coffee convert, if you will, in Colorado. And it's not that I just started drinking coffee when I moved to Colorado, but I came a true convert of coffee because I came upon um, a, a cool coffee house in the cool college town that we lived in, and, and, and the coffee house was named Mugs. You can't read that, even those on the front row, because it is so worn out five and a half years later. As soon as you walked in the door of Mugs Coffee House, you just felt the coolness of the 20-something-year-old owner and entrepreneur who always dressed like he just didn't care, oozing out of the place. From the art on the walls to the, the windows that, that line uh, two walls to the computers um, to the cool logo to uh, the, the cool furniture, none of which matched to the cool people that hung out there, you couldn't help but fall in love with coffee at Mug's Coffee House. And so as soon as we moved back to Memphis, I was determined to find another Mug's. And I looked high, and I looked low. And I have yet to find Mug's Coffee House in downtown Memphis, or even midtown Memphis, and even on the edge of East Memphis have I searched, and I've not found it. You see, Mug's Coffee House was much more than just a place to drink coffee. It was a place to experience coffee and to experience something bigger than coffee. Culture is a powerful thing. We think because of the cultures that we move out in and out of, because of the, the context that we move in, out, in and out of, that we are in love with one thing, that we are motivated by one thing, but we find ourselves later realizing we were motivated by something altogether different. I wasn't in love with coffee as much as I was in love with the experience I had drinking coffee at Mugs. The culture of Mugs is what I was one to. And I want you to know that my experience with Mugs, I think, is like many people's experience with Jesus. You know, Jesus is just kind of out there. He, he, he's, okay, I mean, we live in America and, and most of us, many of us, you know, live in the South and are from the South and, and we've heard Jesus and, and we know that we're supposed to love Jesus and we know that it's a good thing, this, this Christianity thing, but we don't really fall in love necessarily until we go to that church with that preacher or that music or that youth program, or that building filled with those people. We don't really fall in love with with, with Jesus, per se, until we get to the right church. But then the preacher leaves. 
But then there's some change. But then the direction goes awry. And all of a sudden we cool, not just on the church, but on Jesus. We find ourselves moving away and, and, and maybe we, we, we stay in that church when the new minister comes or we stay in that church when the changes happen, but we find out that we're really just dreaming about better church days gone by. And what was happening there is that we weren't necessarily in love with Jesus. The gospel really hadn't captivated our souls. Or at some point, that church or that minister or that whatever, the culture of that context overruled our love for Jesus Christ. And what I want you to know this morning is that there is more to the Christian life than a cultural experience. What Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he is giving us some of the greatest doctrine of all the Bible. There is not a more doctrinally based book than the book of Romans. But what people do with the book of Romans is they misuse it. They think that this high doctrine, this great doctrine, is something just to be captured in our minds, but it really doesn't have anything to do with our hearts. That is why congregations and churches that are real heady, that are all about intellect and very little about emotion, go to the book of Romans. But I want you to understand that the reason Paul lays out the high doctrine and the deep doctrine that he does is so that we might be moved to give all that we are to Jesus. In chapter 12, in verse 1, we read this. Paul says, Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, he argues for the deep truths of the gospel for 11 chapters. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you. In other words, everything that I've taught from all the way up to this point, I am appealing to you now to do something. And this is what I want you to do. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do you see, it is the deep grace of Jesus that will win not just your mind, but your heart to offer your bodies holy and acceptable to God as a living sacrifice to say, do with me as you will, O God. My life is yours. And friends... Union with Christ, which is the focus of these uh, 14 verses, and really further is all the, the, the entire uh, chapter 6, is, is, um, is one of the most central teachings of the gospel. Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, 33 times in his, in his books, his other books and epistles. 33 times he reminds us and teaches us about what it means to be in Christ. Thank you, Jeremy. Man, my voice is fine until I get up here. This is the second week in a row. Uh, Let me put this down. There we go. Paul wants us to see 
that this doctrine of union with Christ is at the very heart of seeing real and radical changes in your life and mine. Do you want to know how to change? Get in tune with the doctrine of union with Christ. And here it is. Union with Christ simply means that what has happened to Jesus, past, present, and future, has happened to you. That God the Father right now sees no distinction between you and Jesus because you are united with Christ Jesus in His past, in His present, and in His future. There is no distinction, hear me, in the Father's heart for you this morning because you are inseparably connected and united with Jesus the Christ. Elise... Fitzpatrick, in her book, Found in Him, says this. She said, Our union with Christ may be summed up in these words. Because the Father has immeasurable love for the Son, He has immeasurable love for us. Do you feel love this morning? Do you feel so loved that you are willing to give up anything for Jesus? To go anywhere, to do anything, to love anyone, to forgive anyone? Then you need to hear the doctrinal truth about union with Christ this morning. So let's look at it. The first thing that we need to see is that we are inseparably anchored to everything Jesus accomplished in his death. What shall we say then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on to talk about how Jesus died and he's not going to die again. Why is he making this point? Because he wants us to see that we are inseparably joined to Jesus when he was hanging on that cross. That what was happening to him has happened to us. And it is finished. And we don't live like that. We live much more like Betty. Betty is a woman who's been married three times and her third marriage is on the rocks. You see, Betty has been married three times only after enticing three men away from their current marriages to herself. And right now, she is enticing another man, a fourth man, out of his relationship with his wife to her. But something happens right after the wedding. I mean, after Mary, or excuse me, Betty, Mary's not her real name, I don't know why I said Mary, but anyway, Betty, what what she does is she uses the body and she uses seduction to woo men to herself. She uses sex, illicit sex, to to woo men to herself. But as soon as they are married, she can't be intimate with her husband anymore. And it's only a matter of time that she has to find another man. And she has to go through the whole scene again of enticing him away, of illicit sex, of encounters in the middle of the day in different places. You see, what happened to Betty is this. When she was five years old, an uncle started sexually molesting her. And from the age of five until the age of 12, he molested her. 
He controlled her. He dominated her. And he left a a wound the size of this room in her soul. And so Mary, or excuse, I don't know why I keep saying Mary. We'll say uh, Betty Mary. Maybe that's her middle name. I'm sorry. Let's just call her Mary, all right? Why not? Uh, (laughs) What's happening with Mary is this. The pain of the past is her identity. The shame of the past, the guilt of the past, how dirty she feels from what happened to her in the past is her present reality. So much so that she can't just have a normal relationship. She can't just give herself to a man. It has to be more exciting. It has to be more tantalizing. It has to be more so that somehow she can erase, even just for a moment, even just for a season, the, the, the shame and the guilt that she feels over what happened to her in the past. We're seeing that right now in Downton Abbey. If you're a Downton Abbey fan and you had not seen the last two weeks, put your fingers in both ears and just say, la, 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 la. All right, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tell you. Those of you who have watched Downton Abbey, you know what I'm talking about. There's such shame, there's such guilt that a woman can't give herself to a committed relationship because she feels dirty and she feels violated. Dear friends, that's how we live when we don't believe that we have died with Christ. It's how we live when we don't believe that we were as with Jesus as we possibly could be, that He was representing us on the cross as much as He can possibly represent us, and that is perfectly. And that the just judge of heaven and earth, His Father, removed all of His grace and love and mercy from His Son, and He made His own Son the object of His wrath. And He poured out His wrath so much so that now there is no more wrath of God toward us as His children. There is no more condemnation. There is no more guilt or shame because it has been dealt with once for all in Christ Jesus. And you don't believe that most of the time, nor do I. This is how we typically live instead. When we live believing that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to really deal with our sin before God, to remove the guilt of it, to remove the shame of it, to to, to provide genuine and and ultimate forgiveness once for all, when we deny that, here's, here's how we typically live. We live guilty before God for our sin. Because what happens if if Jesus didn't really unite us to himself on the cross, then we're going to have to stand before God one day, someday, and we're going to have to, 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 to say something that will hopefully change God's mind about us. And so we live guilty. And so we live shameful. And so we are paralyzed by guilt and shame most of the time. And most of our prayer life and most of the reason that we come to church is so that we can feel more guilt and more shame so that we can feel righteous by feeling guilty. So we can feel close to God by feeling far away from God. And we live as if nothing has happened. 
And God says, stop living like that. The second thing that, 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 or, or I guess action that we, um, commit ourselves to when we don't let go of the guilt and shame of our sin is that we live seeking to make amends to God. We live trying to outperform the past. We get up each day and we say, God, I'm going to be better today than I was yesterday. And by the end of the day, we feel miserable and dejected and worthless. And we wonder why we just run to our sin. Because God never intended for you to make amends for your sin to Him. Jesus did that for you. If union with Christ is true, then you are free from that kind of living. You are free from having to to somehow manipulate God with your good behavior. I know that's how we live and that's how we think. And a third thing, if Christ did not represent us perfectly on the cross in His death, then every negative thought we have about ourselves is true and we should believe it. I just wrote some thoughts down that I know come to me a lot and I'm talking to you, I have a feeling that it comes to you as well. If, if we weren't inseparably joined to Jesus, then no one really does love me. Why would they? I'm worthless. I am alone. It's all up to me to turn my life around. I will never amount to anything. I don't have what it takes to move forward. Life is meaningless. I have no one to love and no one to love me. I will always fail. Why even try? Get this. If you are still in Adam, if Adam is the one that you are united to and nothing's happened to that, all of that is true. God doesn't love you. He's waiting for you to live a perfect life so he can accept you. God is not near to you. He's not your friend. He is your judge. And he's your enemy. If all of that is, if we were not united to Christ in his death on the cross, then you are alone and nobody really cares about you. So eat, drink, and be merry because that's all you got. Tomorrow you die. But if we're united to Christ in his death, God does not count our sin against us because he has counted our sin against Christ. And there is no double jeopardy. The tri- you can't be retried. It's done. It's finished. We're inseparably anchored to everything that happened to Jesus on the cross. Secondly, we are inseparably anchored to everything that happened to Jesus in his resurrection. Oh my goodness. I have a couple of friends that have lost their spouses. It's one of the most painful things you can possibly go through is, um, is watch a friend. And I'm, the thing that is worse is actually going through it, I know. But to watch a friend and to watch a, a man or a woman lose their spouse, it's traumatic. You see the one that they had committed their life to. You see the one that that they thought that they were going to have the rest of their lives with. You see the one that they finally found and someone that could love them and someone that they could love and they have a history together. They have children together. They have a life together. And what that death signifies 
is loneliness. What that death signifies is there'll be no more memories and no more love in this life. That it is over and it's final and it's done. And I pray to God that I I don't have to experience that anytime soon. And I pray that Rachel doesn't have to experience that either. But do you understand that as Christians, we have a hope beyond the worst fear, and that is death. You see, what what Paul is saying is if, if you are in living relationship with Jesus through faith, listen... Not if you're living a perfect enough life. Not if you're doing well enough today. But if you are united to Christ in His death, you're united to Christ in His resurrection. And guess what? Death cannot even hold you back in your relationship with Him. And do you understand who Jesus is? He is what is behind and who is behind every single blessing in this life. Do you know why marriage at its its height, at its greatest point, is so great? Do you know why our culture, our generation, and no generation before us can really get away from marriage? Why even Hugh Hefner has been married something like three times. It's because all of us want a love and a lover that looks at us and and says, I know you perfectly, and I still love you ferociously. I know everything about you, and I'm not going to drive you away. I know what you did yesterday. I know what you did today. And I don't care what you do tomorrow. You can't drive me away from your love. Do you understand that that is the love that marriage is supposed to be? But only because marriage has the role, the sole role of mirroring and giving us a physical, emotional, soul-binding experience of God's love for us. Do you understand that the greatest love you've experienced in this life is only a tiny reflection of the love that you can have with Christ Jesus? That He is the ultimate lover of your soul. He is the ultimate lover of who you are. And nothing, nothing can change the reality that even death will not separate us from the love of God. Why? Because death came to Jesus and it didn't hold him down. But three days later, he rose from the dead and he lived on this earth and then he ascended on high and he said, I'm coming back to get you. And what he is saying is this, is that there is nothing that can separate you from my love. There's no pain in this life that can distance you from me. There's no sin that you can commit that's going to distance you from me. Nothing you do will make me hold you at arm's length and say, when you get it together, come back to me. Nothing. Why? Because I love you not out of what you do or don't do. I love you out of, out of what Jesus has done. And you are going to be raised with him one day in glory because death could not hold him down. Paul says this in Romans 8, 38, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Dear friends, do you understand that the Father's opinion of you will not change when you get to glory? It won't get better when you see Him face to face. His opinion of you then is now because of Jesus. And now here is what we do. Our flesh at this point is saying, if that's true, I'm scared to death that if I believe it, I don't know what life would look like. I I don't know what I would do. I can't, I can't live without my guilt. I can't live without my shame. I can't live without all the negative stuff. I, I, I just can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, I, I would just go crazy. Let me tell you something. What Paul is saying is this. He is saying that grace is the motivator for godliness and the only motivator for godliness. What he is saying is this, you will not live the life that you can live in Christ until you believe not just 80% of what he's saying, but 100% of what he's saying. Grace is not just one of the motivators for obedience in the Christian life. It is the only, the only, the superior motivation for obedience in the Christian life. It is an altogether superior motivation. And so that is why we come down through um, this passage and we must see that Paul now tells us we therefore must walk in what is real, namely the reality of the newness of life. What Paul is saying is this, this is what has happened to you in Christ. Now go live and walk as if it's happened. Let me give you this illustration. Tomorrow, Andrew and Haley Vincent will take um, their foster child, Drew, and they will sign papers and make him their legal son. Isn't that exciting? Um, Andrew, Haley, is, is Drew back there? Is he asleep? No. Would you pick him up? I just, I want you to get a, get an image here. Stand up. Come on, brother. All right. There's little Drew. There's Andrew. <laughs> there you go. Andrew and Haley have been fostering little Drew for, for how many months? Like six months, eight months? A year? There you go. Time flies. For me, because I don't have to get up in the middle of the night. But uh, tomorrow, well, okay, a few weeks ago, um, Haley gave birth to a biological son, Liam. Tomorrow, there will be no distinction legally between Liam and, and, and Drew. Tomorrow, that little boy will be their son. Now, in order, nothing can change that reality. His disobedience can't change that reality. How he feels can't change that reality. What he thinks about himself can't change that reality. Nothing can change that reality. He will be their son tomorrow forever. But for Drew, 
to experience the blessing of having parents, of going from not having parents to having parents, from being in foster care to being an adopted son, he has to believe in what has happened. And to the degree that he believes that these are two loving people that chose me, that, that welcomed me in, that, that held me as, and treated me as their own son, there's going to be no difference in the love before and after tomorrow. To the degree that he believes that they, these people, want my best, he's going to obey their laws. To the degree that, that, that they, that he is going to their dinner table and supping and not just using them for food, but, but the food is there to endear him to them and them to him. To the degree that he is willing to live as a son of Andrew and Haley is to the degree that he will be blessed. And what foolishness for him to do anything but that. Do you get it? That's you and me. I mean, what else could God have done? He has paid the price. He has gone to the cross and everything that we have done, everything that we're doing and everything that we will do has been paid for. And Jesus lived under the law, so now the Father looks at us as if we have obeyed the law, heart, mind and soul, all throughout our lives. And so now, do you know what God wants? I mean, now we can go to the question. See, I'm kind of working back the text to, to, to now the beginning. Now do you understand the foolishness of the question, what, um, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? Are you a fool? Do you understand what God has done for you? Do you understand your position in Christ? How can you want to live like an orphan? How can you want to live like your father who's given everything he has to give, doesn't really know what he's doing? How can you think that you have better control of your life, that you have better control of your destiny, that that you know what laws should pertain to you or not? That you, that you know better than God of how to use your body sexually. That you know uh, uh, how to better use your money and how to better use your time. How foolish of us. When the God of the universe has singled us out and he's done everything he can do, uniting us to his son Jesus, that we might be children of God, dearly loved, dearly adopted forever. Do you see it? And you say, well, what do we do now? I mean, if all of this is true, then what do we do? I'll tell you what you do. What do you think Andrew and Haley want from their son? Love. (laughs) Do they want his obedience? Yeah. But not without his love. Do they, do they want him to, um, to spend time with them, to run to them, to love on them? Yes. But not to, not to prove that he's a real son. And if he doesn't, then they're going to try to, you know, take some legal action to do away with the adoption. No! They want that because their hearts have already been won over. And the hardest thing that we could possibly do, and some of us in this room have experienced this, and that is to take Drew from them right now. Why? Because their hearts are one to this little boy. God's heart is one to you. You don't have to win his heart. It is one. 
And so what do we do now? Paul tells us in Galatians 5, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what you're free to do now? That you're not living as an abused person who is living in the past just trying to get beyond the guilt and the shame. But when you finally let go of your guilt and shame, do you know how you can live now? You can love God and others. Mary or Betty, the tragedy of that story is this. That she couldn't love God or anybody else because her whole life was consumed with getting rid of the guilt and shame. Well, as a Christian, the guilt and shame has been dealt with in Jesus. And now you can go love God and others. And that's the greatest commandment. Now you can do something. Now you can be of some use to God and those around you. Because you don't need anybody's love. Now you can be the biggest forgivers in the culture. No matter what somebody's doing to you, no matter what somebody has done to you, you can look at your relationship with God and and say, well, they have yet to even get close to what I've done to God and look at how God has treated me. I'm united in Christ. Surely I can forgive you for your sin. Do you see it? Do you understand that your eyes will be open to, to people's hurt and pain and there will be no way that you can just pass by somebody Why? Because you're not consumed with your life and God and how you're going to manipulate your way to Him today. But you've woken up that morning, you've appropriated the reality of your salvation, and now you can go and love somebody. Now you can say, when you see somebody on the side of the road, when you see somebody hurting in your neighborhood, when you see uh, a, a social issue in your community, you can say, my life for yours, I give myself for you. Why? Because Jesus gave Himself for me. And that is not just some some little message on a track that we believe back in the seventh grade. It is the very lifebeat of our soul. It's the framework of how we think and how we identify ourselves. When that is true, then we begin to love radically. Do you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Then offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And I'll end with this. Paul goes on in chapter 12 to say this. Let the law reign supremely. No. You know what he says? Now that you believe all the stuff that I've taught you up to chapter 11, now listen to this. Let love be genuine. Isn't that beautiful? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast, hold fast to what is good. Here it is again. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. If you want a real competition, then make it a competition to love each other more than the other person can love you. Can you imagine how powerful the church would be if we were that kind of community? We're outdoing each other in honor and love. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Why? Because look at what He did for you 11 chapters through. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't use people to make yourself feel good, therefore having to get by the important people. No. Spend time with people that culturally mean nothing to anybody else. Why? Because you're a friend of Jesus. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of, of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. In other words, never take revenge. You know the cycle of violence? Philip, who was shot yesterday, you probably saw it on the news, I saw it. He was on his way to the store and somebody stole his cell phone and shot him in the face. And guess what's going to happen now? What do you think? Those that are devoted to him are going to find out who did it. And they're going to want revenge. I mean, that's just how it works. That's how Memphis streets run. And God says, look, you shot me and I loved you. I laid my life down for you. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of law. If possible, live in peace with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Dear friends, would you drink in what has happened to you in Christ? And may we go be different, loving people in this culture. And may the world see Jesus. (laughs) And may we tell them about the love that we possess in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you became, that he who had no sin became sin for us so that in Christ we might be the very righteousness of God. Oh, Jesus, would you teach us through our relationship with you and what you have done for us to do likewise to others? Would you ignite just hope and passion in our service to you today? Would you help us to to, to believe? We believe, but help us in our unbelief, oh God. Help us to believe that we're worth so much that you would would unite us to yourself, to, to Jesus himself, that we might be loved forever. Oh God, would you do that work in us, that you might ignite a revolution of kingdom-minded, gospel-driven mission that is authentic because it happens by simply seeing our neighbor in need and doing something. Not necessarily having to start a non-profit to do it, but just being the church, oh God. Not broadcasting it, not letting anyone at just doing it, Lord Jesus. Help us to be your church because we believe your gospel. Thank you so much for the deep truth of your word. Thank you that you didn't hold it back, but you just laid it all out for us in this book. And God, I pray that we would believe it in Jesus' name. Amen.